Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. There are still a few races to be completed if you live in the Northern Hemisphere this year, but for the vast majority of triathletes, the racing is done, and it's time to start thinking about recharging, recovering, and planning for next year. 2021 has proven to be a lot better than 2020 with the resumption of racing in much of the world, and despite the sinusoidal-like wave of COVID cases, there's really been no dramatic recurrent surge to put us all back down into lockdowns. For sure, this is due to vaccinations and the fact that most people are taking advantage of that, but we shouldn't fool ourselves. With the persistently high number of vaccine resistors, this disease isn't going anywhere, and we're going to have to figure out how to live with it in our midst. Still, I think we can all be reasonably happy with the fact that for the most part, triathlon coped pretty well with the many curveballs thrown at it this past year. I, for one, am optimistic moving into this offseason that we're going to be much better off than we were last year at this time. And I'm very hopeful that 2022 is going to start to look a lot more than a lot more like 2019 did than what 2020 did. Time will tell. Off-season is always a topic of some discussion, and I'm always interested in how people approach this time period. Do they back off on their training intensity and volume? Do they take a break from triathlon completely in favor of other pursuits? Personally, I do a little bit of both. I definitely will reduce the training volume and intensity after my final race that is now just a few weeks away, and I'm going to start pursuing some other sports like alpine skiing. However, I still will swim, bike, and run, as I really enjoy this and have found over the past few years that staying consistent with triathlon training throughout the year pays big dividends with respect to race performance when the new season eventually rolls around. I will, of course, ramp up strength training. I've talked a lot about this in many, many episodes over the course of this show, and I will, (laughs) no doubt, relax my diet with respect to maybe taking in some more from our wine cellar and perhaps an aperitif here and there. Well, what about you? What do your off-season habits look like? I'd love to hear about it because it could inform some medical segments in upcoming episodes. So drop me a line at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or perhaps direct message me through the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page. I'd love to hear what your habits look like in the off-season so I can share them with other listeners and, as I said, perhaps inform some upcoming medical segments of the TriDoc Podcast episodes. But for today's show... This is episode 79 of the podcast, and over the previous 78 shows of medical segments, I think you would agree that several themes have come out. Since the very beginning of this podcast, I have promised to try and help the average triathlete cut through the marketing hype that permeates advertising for all manner of things sold to triathletes in an effort to help you, my listeners, understand what is worth your time and hard-earned cash dollars. Well, today I am joined by the podcast's indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. We have a conversation about many of these themes and how you can be more attuned to the kinds of common and often deceptive practices that we come across all too often in our research on the very things that we try to investigate when we talk about them in these medical segments when we bring them to you. And that's coming up in a short while. Later, I'm joined by registered dietitian and nutritionist Alex Larson. 
Alex has been working with endurance athletes for some time now, trying to convince anyone who will listen that eating is really not a bad thing. And carbohydrates are really important for training and racing, and she does so through an enormously entertaining social media feed, as well as through a very successful business. We talk about that and a bunch of other nutrition-related topics, and that will be coming up a little later on. Best of all, Alex also joined me for a bonus segment that is available only to my Patreon supporters. For the price of about a cup of coffee per month, you can get access to this new interview, along with all kinds of interesting other interviews available only to my supporters. Right now, there is bonus content in the form of interviews with Simon Marshall, Mark Allen, Dan Emfield, just to name a few, along with a video of a talk by yours truly on the science of tapering. So visit my Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash Podcast and become a supporter so that you can get access to all of that plus whatever's coming up later right now. And that URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thanks so much in advance just for considering. For the medical segment today, I'm joined by my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. We are going to revisit and discuss some of the things that have made this podcast somewhat unique. The reason that I introduced this podcast was to kind of demystify a lot of the stuff that triathletes are inundated with all the time in bringing the uh, marketing of supplements, of diets, of different devices that are constantly being thrown at them, telling them that, you know, if they only use this particular thing, they're going to get somehow faster, or they're going to have an edge on their competition, or somehow it's going to make them better than they otherwise would be if they didn't use it. And what we have found over the two plus almost three years now that we've been doing the podcast is that many of the claims that are made in selling these things often use the same kinds of strategies in saying that they are backed by science in order to make themselves more attractive to athletes. So Maddie and I wanted to kind of revisit the general kind of strategies that are being used by these marketers as a kind of refresher for you, the listeners, to kind of always keep in mind, especially as we head into the gift giving season, when a lot of triathletes might be looking at things that they might not have purchased to this point, but they might be thinking of asking for, uh, or that they might be looking at getting, because a lot of the gift giving guides are now starting to come out in different triathlon publications. So Maddie, welcome once again to the on-air portion of the TriDoc podcast. Hi, I'm happy to be here and share what I've learned so far working on the show. All right. So um, I want to sort of just set things up first of all, because, uh, you know, a lot of the time, a lot of the manufacturers will say, you know, this particular device or this particular supplement is backed by scientific research. And I think that, you know, as we, you and I have talked, whenever we review the literature around any particular thing, I always try to make the point that, you know, there are principles of good scientific research that you should always think about 
even before you even start to look at the, you know, the papers that have been published, if a paper has been published on anything. Um, and I want to just state again, those principles, because whenever we discuss a given thing, so if, if somebody's saying that, you know, product A will, you know, science has scientifically been shown to improve performance for, you know, running, for example, you need to, as a consumer, think to yourself, well, does that, is that ring true? And, and there are several questions you can ask yourself before even looking at the, you know, any science that might be out there. And, and these principles are, is it biologically plausible? So just because somebody says that, you know, this particular thing is going to make you run faster. You need to think to yourself, well, does that biologically make sense? I mean, you know, I can say that, uh, you know, a running shoe will make you run faster, but if it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, then biologically anyways, like for example, the Nike running shoe, it, it kind of biologically makes sense that it's going to make you run faster because it's essentially adding almost like a spring to the bottom of your feet. And we know that biologically, if you improve the springiness of your legs, you will get some improved velocity. So biologically, that makes sense. There also needs to be uh, a dose response. Now with a running shoe, that's obviously not going to be possible. But when we talk about supplements, for example, or any kind of device use, we want to see a dose response. We want to see that the more you use, at least to a point, you're going to see increasing improvement. We want to see that whatever it is that is being claimed to add benefit has been compared not to a placebo, but is being compared to whatever the gold standard is currently in use. So uh, we don't want to say that, you know, the Nike running shoe, I'm, I'm, I'm using the Nike running shoe, even though that Nike doesn't use or doesn't claim to be scientifically supported in a lot of cases, but that's just the thing I used off the top. And so it's going to keep coming back. So the Nike running shoe, we don't want to hear it. To, you know, we don't want to we don't want them to say the Nike running shoe has been scientifically proven to be better than running barefoot. We want them to say the Nike running shoe has been scientifically proven to be better than running in the best running shoe out there right now, because then you know that yes, it really is a better thing because if it's better than running barefoot, who cares if it's better than running in the best fastest running shoe right now, then yeah, that's a big deal. Is the research claims being made? Is it generalizable? So, you know, we hear a lot these days about the limitations of research that are done only on small groups of men. Uh, if there's a research study that's done on five college-aged, you know, male athletes, is that applicable widely to the population? Does it apply to women, for example? Does it apply to older men? You know, there's really doubtful you know, you you would you would be wise to doubt whether or not that kind of research is generalizable. So we need to look at those kinds of studies and and always when a, when a company or when a claim is made about research having been done, we need to look and see who that research was done on to see if it's generalizable. And then finally, we need to know if it's reproducible. So a single study on a small group of people that shows a result is great, but if that can't be reproduced by other researchers then that kind of limits its effects, limits its effect size. So again, it has to be biologically plausible. There has to be a dose response. The comparison should be to the gold standard and not to placebo. 
It needs to be generalizable and it needs to be reproducible. So those five things. Okay, so Maddie, um, give us a sense of some of the things that uh, we see over and over again when we talk about the different claims that are made by um, these you know, manufacturers when they talk about marketing. Yeah, so I think a big one a lot of times is that marketers will say that there's large amounts of evidence that is supporting their product. But then when you try to actually look for the evidence, they even sometimes don't cite any studies or they may only cite one study or, for example, a few studies, as you've said, that has that have I've seen as little as three participants or sometimes even one participant. And the problem is that in marketing, they're taking then this very small amount of science and then blowing it up to be a very large conclusion that actually isn't true. And they're doing that basically on the principle that most people are not going to check and actually read the studies. You know, I don't blame anyone for not going all the way through to reading the studies, but the problem that I think for triathletes is that I don't really, I don't want people to be going and spending lots and lots of money on things that are not actually going to make them faster when there are lots of great ways to invest the money that you have in the sport that will bring you more fulfillment. Yeah. And some of these things are really expensive. I mean, we just recently talked about the lever device um, and the lever device may confer some benefits. I mean, we, we, you know, in, in our research, we, we didn't find that there's any particularly good studies on the lever specifically, but the theoretical benefits of the lever do exist, but that is not an inexpensive device. We're talking about at least a thousand dollar investment and that's a lot of money. And uh, whether or not it's you know beneficial or useful to someone is certainly questionable, and based on what the researchers or based on what the you know the um, manufacturers have on their website where they claim that there's really good evidence, and then you look in that what that really good evidence is. It was was it two or three people? I think it was three. Study on three people. Yeah, three people, and not even published. So um, yeah, I mean a great example of a product that may actually be useful, but a little bit of a stretch to say that there's great science supporting its use uh, and certainly not great science to s- support spending that much money anyways, uh, right off the top. So Yeah, and uh, I think that with a product like that, I personally, um, like being a professional athlete, you want to think like that you are going to do everything that you possibly can to get better at the sport. And it's tough with products like the lever because like I have suffered running injuries. And if there's something out there that I think is going to help me avoid a running injury or help me get back to running faster, it's really tempting to buy that. But I think like from what you and I looked at, the lever is quite a, bit of money and there are other alternatives that have just as much supported scientific evidence if like not more water running, if yeah. not more um, yeah. like the water running which is something that I have used in my training and 
Um, so sometimes there's a cheaper option out there that doesn't look as flashy, but might help you more. Or the and, same. I, and I think that's a great um, sort of point that, you know, there's a lot of cherry picking of science and a lot of, um, you know, lack of completion in what is presented. We, we have found frequently in, in uh, our research, when we look at products that they will present either, you know, uh, one paper that supports their, what they want to present. And I, I'm not referring to lever here. This is just across the board um, that they will present uh, one single paper that presents the finding or presents results that support what they want without necessarily presenting any of the five or 10 other papers that are out there. Um, or they will cherry pick, uh, you know, a single figure from within a paper. So a paper may not be overall positive and show the effects that they want. But if there's a single graph in there that kind of supports what they want, they'll tease that out and make it seem as if the whole paper supports what they want. And we've seen that several times as well. I think uh, a great example is uh, beetroot juice. As I just recently found out, uh, we missed it when we uh, reviewed beetroot juice way back. Um, gosh, I think it was episode 30 something. Um, you know, beetroot juice has been shown to have some ergogenic uh, benefits, but all of the benefits, it turns out, are in men. There are no benefits to women, none. There's been two pretty good large studies now done on women alone that show that women don't get any benefits from beetroot juice, and you're not going to see any of those results reported on any of the sites for any of the beetroot juice supplements. Um, so that's an example of you know manufacturers not presenting all of the evidence. You can find links to, you know, most of the evidence that is positive, but they won't link to the negative evidence. And again, I understand that, but it's not fair. And it means it's up to you, the consumer, to do that digging, which most people are not going to do. Um, but it's just, again, buyer beware or listen to this podcast and hopefully we'll uncover it. Um, you came across a really fascinating article in the lay press that I think led to us wanting to have this conversation. Tell me, tell us about uh, that article on uh, the, the wellness drinks. Yeah, it was an article in the New York times. And I think that it just got me thinking about how these types of marketing campaigns affect everyone. Um, I think that triathlon marketing is a specific niche within the world, but, um, you know, all sorts of, especially within the health industry as at large, um, we see a lot of things that are marketed, um, to be better than the evidence might actually show. So this article specifically talked, um, started out with speaking about wellness drinks and talking about how maybe people are more vulnerable to these wellness drinks that the claim made by them is that they help make you calm. And so in this time where we've had so much uncertainty with the pandemic and um, lots of people are looking for something that's going to help with stress, help with anxiety and really calm them down. But the article is saying, you know, this is a really smart marketing campaign with little evidence to support it. 
um, a big thing with this article is talking about what actually goes into the drinks. So some of those things are certain herbs, which can be called adaptogens, um, amino acids, and CBD. But there's certain things that you have to be aware of in thinking about these ingredients beyond just seeing a, the buzzword of the name of the ingredient on the label. And uh, CBD is one of those things that has applicability to, tri to triathletes because it's marketed quite aggressively. Uh, we have, or I have talked about it, but actually before you came on uh, very early on in the history of this podcast, I reviewed CBD. There isn't a whole lot of science on CBD. What science there is, is not done very well. Um, and that's because the environment for research on marijuana derivatives like CBD is just not very supportive. And so it's hard to get research done, but the research that has been done that has shown some beneficial effects in some kinds of, um, uh, areas. So for sleep or for, uh, anxiety, for example, shows that you need to use very high doses of CBD, like in the hundreds to 500 milligrams. I think it's milligrams, not micrograms, milligrams. Um, and these drinks, which offer, you know, these purported benefits of CBD, they're offering doses that are like, what, 20 milligrams? So yeah, anywhere from five to 25 milligrams. Yeah. So you're talking like orders of magnitude less than what has actually been tested and actually shown to maybe provide some benefits. Um, similarly, even the, the products, the product formulations that are made for triathletes don't have the doses that are uh, the same as what have been tested or at least in the research. Um, now the question becomes, you know, the, the doses that have been tested, is that necessarily going to be a good thing for someone to be taking when they're doing a triathlon? Now, a lot of the CBD products aren't actually marketed to be taken during an event. They're marketed to be taken before for sleep or afterwards for recovery. And again, there's not great research that, you know, this particular agent CBD is good for anything, but um, just, you know, again, it comes down to this notion that, we don't expect consumers to look into this that closely, but we do we do want people to have their eyes open and recognize that when a manufacturer says this product has been shown scientifically to confer this benefit, that you should know that, yeah, there may be some science out there that shows that it does have a benefit, but these are the questions you need to be always sort of thinking, you know, is it scientifically shown at the dose that you're marketing or is it scientifically shown at a significantly higher dose? Is it scientifically shown, you know, to, to actually help me as a person who is, you know, uh, maybe a, a person of color, maybe a, a female, maybe a, an older athlete, or is it only, you know, shown to, to benefit a specific gender, a specific sex, uh, sorry, specific gender, a specific age, uh, specific uh, racial background. These are all the things that you should have in the back of your mind whenever you see those kinds of claims. Um, now, all of that doesn't take away the fact that a lot of people who will take these things, like even these drinks that you saw in the New York Times, a lot of these people will still feel some kind of effect. And 
that effect we have to acknowledge is real. Uh, and that effect is simply placebo effect because we know that the placebo effect is very real and the placebo effect should, you know, I'm not discounting it. I mean, if people get an effect from something, regardless of whether or not there's scientific research to support it, if you're getting an effect from something, fantastic. And I, I, you know, I think it's great and you should continue to use whatever it is that's giving you that effect. And don't let, you know, me or the science convince you otherwise. If you think that something is beneficial to you, then it very likely is. Um, I've talked about um, dry needling not too long ago and how, you know, the, the research for dry needling is actually very, very poor. There's very, very few people who, who see benefit from dry needling for a wide range of uh, ailments. But the people who benefit from it really, really benefit from it. And it seems that what it is, is it's a very augmented type of placebo effect. And, and there's, you cannot take away the fact that those people are really benefiting. And that's great. I mean, if you're having a benefit from something, then you should continue to use it because, you know, I mean, like I said, placebo effect is real and it's a, it's a very good thing for those who get the, that kind of effect. So I think it's great. And then the other thing, uh, Maddie, I think that's really important and we talked about this a little bit, is <clears throat> the lack of regulation on these things, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that something that can be hard to kind of wrap your head around is that just because something is on an ingredient list, you don't really know how, what method it was used to be, what method of preparation was used to put it inside of that product when we're talking about drinks or different nutrition supplements or anything. So for example, with, with an herb, there's many parts of the plant. And according to regulations, you don't know what part of that plant was used to be put in the drink. It's not necessarily just about the dose, but I think in terms of an ingredient, sometimes, um, the evidence, the scientific evidence around that ingredient may not show benefit in the type of way that you're going to consume it. So like, for example, just with amino acid supplements, sometimes marketers will throw amino acids into a product, but our bodies can't really absorb those amino acids in that form. And so you might just not get any benefit from that ingredient. And that's something that can be really tricky to, to see in marketing because they're never going to tell you that information. And sometimes the marketers might not even know it themselves. And the other issue with uh, the lack of regulation is because, because supplements aren't regulated, um, you don't always know what you're getting. Um, and that's a big issue with uh, doping control. Uh, we've seen people get uh, false, well, not false positives, true positives on um, supplements that they've taken that were contaminated. And uh, while you can sometimes get a reduced uh, penalty for uh, taking an unknowingly contaminated supplement, that's not necessarily a road you want to be going down. <laughs> so uh, there are some uh, certifying agencies. SportSafe is one of them. If you can get a supplement that has been certified by SportSafe, then that is an, an instance where at least you know that 
to certain degree that the supplement won't be contaminated. But there are very, very few of those out there. Uh, most supplements remain completely unregulated, and it's a little bit of a wild west. And the one that tends to be the, the, the culprit more often than not is CBD products, which can be contaminated with low levels of THC, which is illegal. And if you do get uh, a test and THC is found, you can get face a two-year suspension. So something to consider anytime you're taking any kind of supplement is uh, where it's coming from. Is it reputable? And is it certified by SportSafe to know that there's not going to be anything in there you don't want? A few examples from some of the stuff that we've talked about. Uh, we talked about beetroot juice just briefly. Um Amp Human, which is topical bicarbonate, advertised very aggressively and uh, as being, um, you know, scientifically proven to improve performance. We we reviewed the literature on that. That was a great example of how, yeah, there's theoretical science, but the actual uh, human science on that didn't really bear out quite as well. Uh, a new product uh, that we may review at some point in the future, but it's getting a lot of play right now is Lactigo, which is uh, carnosine that's applied topically. I did some preliminary research on that one because I was interested to see how much science there was uh, to support its use. And there, unsurprisingly, not that much. Uh, the science that I found does show that, yes, if you apply carnosine topically, you can get it into your uh, cells. Uh, but as far as performance goes, uh, it's pretty limited. And then uh, we've talked about devices like the GO2 and the AeroFit, who uh, both don't have great science behind them, but both make very, very uh, big claims. Are, were there any things that, that, we, that you've done research on that sort of surprised you? that uh, you found that, uh, you know, the claims were so outlandish. And then when you actually did the research, you've, you found yourself going, wow, it's pretty thin. One of the things that I've learned in, through this podcast is just what you were mentioning right now, how a lot of times, like, for example, with the carnosine, thinking about how it may actually do what the product says it does in terms of that you apply it to your body and then it goes into your cells. But then that extra step as to whether or not that actually benefits your athletic performance is another, is another discussion, a separate discussion from whether or not it goes into your cells. And so I think that that's something that can be difficult to kind of wrap your head around is sort of like, I think that one thing that marketing is able to do so well is take these uh, biological names like carnosine. I mean, most people, I don't, I don't even really know if I know what that is, you know, right. It's like these, these big kind of scientific words and then um, explaining kind of just very basically that this is going to be something that's going to help your cells. And then from there, if it's helping your cells, it's going to help you run faster or be a better athlete. And I think that unfortunately, that's just many um, steps to take down a scientific road then um, is really realistic for consumers to look into. 
Well, and science is hard, right? I mean, understanding basic research is very difficult, and that's why they boil it down to these little catchy things, these little catchy catchphrases, and and boiling down the result. I, I just had a conversation for an upcoming show that will be airing, uh, I think, before the end of the year, uh, with a basic uh, exercise science researcher, and we talked uh, a little bit about why it is that uh, so many research projects or research uh, studies are done on you know, not real world types of things. So, you know, if you want to know if a product enhances performance, why not study performance? Why not get someone out there and run, you know, a 10K and see how they do on a 10K with and without that product? And, uh, you know, instead what they do is they have people do a very controlled sort of simulation where it's like, let's have you extend your knee 10 times against resistance and see if that improves with and without the product. And the very simple and understandable answer is because as a researcher, you want to control as much as possible and make sure that what you're studying is really only influenced by whether or not your intervention is present or not. Uh, Having somebody run a 10K can be influenced by so many different things, the weather, the time of day, uh, what the athlete ate. Um, It's just an endless amount of things can influence the performance on that 10K. And if you're talking about a difference of seconds to maybe a minute, who knows what went into that? Whereas if you just have somebody do a very, very basic sort of controlled thing of extending the knee 10 times against resistance or whatever till fatigue, then that's much easier to say the only thing that influenced it was whether or not my intervention was there. And you then have to extrapolate from that to performance. Unfortunately, what happens is the manufacturers and the marketers just say, they don't tell you that. They just say, we improved strength by 10%. They won't say that, you know, improving strength by 10% really meant they just were able to do one more leg extension, (laughs) you know, with the product versus without. Um, So it's really, it's getting from, what the marketers claims are to what the real world situation is, is not easy. And that's kind of why we're here to try and help demystify this and explain it. But um, it is, uh, it's a bit of a black hole for consumers, but at the same time, these are the things that uh, a smart consumer should always be asking before investing and before really spending any amount of time or money on any of these things. And I I think something that I have said repeatedly, and you and I have talked about repeatedly, is at the end of the day, the types of gains that you can really expect from most of these things is not gonna be that significant. Uh, Honestly, there's no substitute for just being consistent, putting in the hard work, and over time, you're going to see benefits just from that. Uh, These kinds of supplements, these kinds of devices are very rarely going to give you that kind of an edge over your competition who aren't using them. And I think, uh, I mean, as a pro, is there anything specific that, you know, you found that you or any of your your competitors were using that, that seemed to be in any way a substitute for just putting in the work? I would say no. And I think that this is another um, part where it's been even more tempting for me to to go over some of these products um, after turning pro. And the thing is, because um, on the pro level, many people might have more access to these products through sponsorships or 
discounts, but also I think that everyone is is trying to be the best that they can be. So when you're in transition, everyone has uh, the best technology that is out there. And so I think for me, though, I've recognized, you know, there there are certain things that are going to make a big difference, but often those are things like, you know, we spoke about getting the the carbon plates and the shoes, you know, that has been an upgrade that many athletes have done. And then for example, like, you know, of course, um, of course, like all the pro athletes have race wheels on their bikes, but that's something that I had to make the decision to do when I was starting out the sport and something like putting carbon wheels on your bike is going to make a big difference. And I think that as an athlete, you know, you just have to learn what those things are. And on the other hand, if we're going to go into the bike, there's lots of things that are going to save you five Watts or something. And how much difference is that going to make? Yeah. So I really think that I found that the best that you can do is work on the tool that you have at the starting line, which is your body and what fitness you're going to be in when you get there. And I think the other component is what, mentality you're going to have when you get there. And if you're thinking about how everyone else has technology that you don't, that's probably a greater downside to your performance is the mental thinking that you don't have something rather than actually not having it. So, well, I can't think of a better way to end than on that note, because that is exactly, uh, I, I think the message we want to put across is that you prepare yourself, you prepare your mind and you show up in the best possible state and be ready to go. And, uh, all of the devices, all of the diets, all of the supplements in the world aren't necessarily going to improve either of those things. Maddie Pesh, thank you so much for your continued work on this podcast. I really, really have appreciated you and I've loved working with you on this. Um, if anyone out there is listening and has a question about something that they'd like us to review in the coming months, please send it to me, tri underscore doc at icloud.com. We are always looking for new things to uncover, new things to look into, and other medical questions to answer. So uh, keep listening, keep sending those questions along, and we look forward to um, trying to decipher the mysteries of marketing for you and help you decide what's really best in your interests training for triathlon. Maddie, thanks again for joining me today, and I look forward to working with you uh, until such time as you are ready to go on to medical school. Thanks for having me. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, then you know that the TriDoc is well-versed in the science of endurance sport. If you are looking for a coach who will bring that kind of insight to coaching, someone who brings more than 20 years of experience in racing and the knowledge that comes with years of coaching and both USAT and Ironman U coaching certifications, then maybe the TriDoc is someone you should consider for your coach to help you take your training in racing to the next level. As a member of the staff at LifeSport Coaching, Jeff Sankoff can get you access to team workouts and camps, as well as discounts on clothing, nutrition products, and even bikes. So if you are thinking about a triathlon coach to help you achieve your performance goals, visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com to see how the TriDoc can help you get to where you want to be in triathlon. Those websites again, tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com. My guest today is Alex Larson. 
Alex is a small-town, Minnesota-based registered dietitian and age-group triathlete. She discovered her calling the moment she crossed the finish line of Ironman Wisconsin in wanting to help athletes with their fueling to improve performance and body composition. She is the owner of Alex Larson Nutrition, and you can find her very informative and uh, highly entertaining Instagram feed, where I uh, will definitely encourage you to go and give her a follow uh, because she does a lot of edutaining of athletes uh, with very, very funny posts and videos covering all things that are related to endurance nutrition. Through her virtual nutrition coaching program, she works one-on-one with athletes to personalize their nutrition to them, creating a flexible eating style that allows them to reach their goals and maintain results long-term. But I'm very excited to uh, get her here on the podcast today because we're going to have a discussion about her approach to nutrition. Alex, thank you so much for being here on the TriDoc podcast. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. I'm just pumped to have this chat with you today. Uh, this is great. So Alex, uh, I want to start first with uh, your approach, how you would describe it to working with endurance athletes. Yeah, well, I very much find that nutrition is an individualized type of thing. So um, with every athlete, I try and very much get to know them and what their goals are and what their training looks like and their lifestyle. And I and I look to personalize their nutrition for them. Um, Cause there's no like one size fits all diet. It's all how you can make it work for yourself. And so that's why for me and my program, I, I like to offer ongoing coaching. Cause it's not just like a one and done appointment where I'm like, here's the information you need, like good luck. No, I want to make sure that I see you through the process and make sure that you can graduate from my program having a very good understanding of how to maintain the results and feel your body as an athlete moving forward without me. And that's something that I know a lot of athletes and even non-athletes get frustrated with, with uh, nutrition programs, right? They, they may see some rapid improvements in body weight, body composition, but then there's that plateau phase and, and people get frustrated very quickly because they feel like they're continuing to follow that program, but they're not seeing the same kind of rate of change that they saw early on. How do you kind of handle that, especially with an athlete who may be looking for, you know, athletes are very results oriented, of course. So, so how yeah. do you kind of deal with that? Yeah. Well, and especially in a world where we just love instant gratification, like it's all about building the consistency to see the lasting results. It's not about the quick results. It's about finding something that works for you long-term. So um, yeah, you know, that's, that's, I feel like life, like there's, there's peaks and valleys, there's storms and sunny days. Like, so being able to have a coach there along that journey, helping you through like the struggles of the plateau and how to push through those and like find things that work I, for me and my system, you know, the first, I have it broken up into different phases. So like a first phase with an athlete is all about awareness, like identifying where are their gaps in their nutrition? Where are their areas in their lifestyle that they can make changes to see better results? And it's not all about weight. I think that that's really important to understand is that the scale is just a number. You're Like it's all about what are your energy levels? What are your hunger levels? If you're constantly hungry all day long, like that's not enjoyable either. Um, what is your body composition look like? You know, is it, um, are you looking to add more muscle mass and having like stronger output that way? Or are you looking to just see the scale change 
in a number, you know, because like there, there's a lot of other things also to play into a factor beyond weight, right? Like I think that's also really important to keep in mind. Um, so if we hit a plateau weight-wise, let's also focus on some other wins of like, hey, you're running a lot faster at the same heart rate that you were before. Like that's a win right there that you're fueling your body to have the energy to go another, you know, 5k in your workouts and still feel like you have plenty of energy afterwards. Like, I really, I, I love that. I love that choice of words, you know, like it's, you're not eating for weight, you're eating for fueling. Uh, you, 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 yeah. you, you refer to that a lot in the, your feed and it's, it, it's, I think it's a great way to kind of rephrase the, the, um, the whole thing, because it's, it's the correct way to think about it. You're eating to fuel. And if you're fueling correctly, you're going to get more out of your body and be able to do things. And, and so, yes, it's weight is important, but it's not the only metric we should be looking at. And uh, it seems to me that that's a, a great way to reframe the whole uh, dynamic for endurance athletes who are so focused on these kinds of metrics. Um, what do you see commonly when endurance athletes come to you and in terms of, you know, the common mistakes that endurance athletes make with their nutrition? And I don't just mean during events, but I just mean in general. Yeah. So, and this might be a little bit surprising. One of the most common things I see with endurance athletes, especially in respect to what they're eating is that um, so like triathletes, ultra distance runners, that's a lot of times who I see, um, under fueling their body for performance, I think is what I see most common. Um, so, I mean, if they're training anywhere from like eight to 16 hours a week, that requires a lot of energy, not only to fuel those workouts, but to also supply the nutrition needed for your body to recover quickly. Um, I think people forget that recovery is just as important as the training itself, because it, you're not going to help your body recover and continue to train daily if um, you're not supplying enough energy. So you're putting yourself at risk for overtraining and injury um, if you're not you know, nourishing this, if you think of your body as like a machine, like it's not a machine, but it's like, you have to supply that energy in order to, to continue to train day in and day out. Um, and that's where like that mental burnout kind of happens too. Like when your workouts just aren't going very well, they're getting more and more difficult and you're like continuing to train harder and longer and it's just not going well. Like that just makes it not very enjoyable either. So there's a lot of, like, it's all kind of connected in a way. And so for me with my athletes, it's all about finding that energy balance and nourishing their body, not only for those great training sessions, but also to have a really efficient recovery so that they feel great the rest of the day and continue to have good workouts day in and day out. Do you find what they're eating is also a problem or is it just that they're not eating enough? Um, both. <laughs> I find um, with a lot of them because they are putting so much strain on their body. Um, we look a lot at protein, uh, making sure that it's, they're getting enough protein. And also we're timing it well throughout the day. Like, cause it's not just like, Oh, I'm going to drink a massive protein drink and I'm getting enough protein for the day. No, like our body likes a steady supply throughout the entire day. So looking at having more balanced meals and snacks, um, is really important. And plus as I think you talked about this a little bit earlier, like fueling your body for 
you know, your athletic endeavors, but also I think it's important to have a balanced lifestyle, um, not being a nutrition robot, but finding that balance between fueling your body for performance and still being an everyday regular human too. Like because we are, we're, we're first and foremost human and then we're athletes, you know, so it's good to find that balance and feel okay going and having a beer with your buddies on a Friday evening, but then, you know, get right back at it, you know, over the weekend and eating really well. Yeah. And I've spoken with uh, Alan Lim from Scratch Labs, you know, he's, he's made that exact same comment that, you know, as triathletes, we tend to be socially isolated and Mm -hmm. food food is a huge social activity. Eating with friends is a huge social thing. And, and when athletes go and restrict themselves either by virtue of, you know, some bad diet or some kind of restrictive diet, then they're, they're cutting that part of socialization out as well. And I think it's, it's a great reminder that yes, we need to include those society, you know, those socialization kinds of things into our lives because it makes everything that much better. And, you know, mental health is, is especially we've seen over the last couple of years in this pandemic, that mental health is, is not to be ignored and uh, food can be a huge part of that. Um, Yeah. Well, and people say, you know, as an endurance athlete getting through a race, it's like 90% a mental game. It's like, yeah, that to a point it is, but you also need to make sure that you are nourishing your body so that you feel good and you don't have to work harder than what, you know, you have to. Now, I imagine it's it's really interesting because uh, watching your feed, you talk so much about the underfed athlete. And I always kind of imagined your job as a nutritionist being more about the overeating athlete. And uh, it's really been kind of a revelation that to, to to think that you actually have to encourage people to eat more almost as much as you might need to encourage people to eat less. So how hard is that? How hard is it to take an athlete who comes to you and say, listen, you really are not eating enough. You need to eat more. Yeah. I imagine well, that they don't, they don't take to that too kindly. Yeah. I will say that those restrictive diets just hurt my soul to be perfect. <laughs> like, I've always like as a dietitian, ever since like even school, I was like, I hate the like, the diets were like, you have to tell them you can't eat something like that. Just, it just goes against everything that I'm all about. Like I love food so much. So I think that's why I was naturally drawn to working with athletes because they do need a lot of energy to do what they want to do. Um, and when, I mean, I've got some athletes that are eating 3000 plus calories a day, and that is a lot of work. That's a lot of food. So Um, it's not always an easy thing to just say, eat more food, because we want to make sure that they're still eating the right foods so that they feel really good throughout the day and in their workouts. Do you worry at all, though? I mean, you know, when an athlete transitions to the off season, you know, they've got this habit of eating 3000 calories a day. Do you worry that, you know, they're going to have trouble now adjusting to eating less? Yeah, I talk a lot with my Ironman athletes about that, because I say, okay, you know, we need to continue um, working together after you're done with your race so that we can come back to a normal human being diet of, you know, a reasonable amount of food. And that was actually a learning for myself when I finished Ironman Wisconsin is I had gone nine months, like constantly eating. And then all of a sudden I was like, Oh, Whoa, I need to like rein this back now. Like, cause you just get used to having ginormous quantities <laughs> at meals and snacks because you're just so hungry. And 
Um, so for me personally, they're just going through that. I was like, yeah, we, and this is something I need to help athletes with so that they don't gain a bunch of weight after their race and they can, you know, so I'm going to be selfish here. I'm going to be selfish here and take advantage of the fact that I'm chatting with you and say that like when I'm doing an Ironman, mm-hmm. I uh, enjoy the fact that I lose weight uh, because normally when I'm not doing an Ironman, I feel like I, I have weight to lose. And then as I ramp up in my training, I don't, I, I try not to appreciably increase too much on how much I'm eating, even though I do, because I have to hungry all the time, but I definitely lose weight. I will lose probably five pounds, five to seven pounds. As I come into the last couple of months towards an Ironman, which frankly, I, I need, need, I, it's helpful for me to lose that because I'm faster on the bike. I'm faster on the run. It's not, I don't yep. feel like I'm losing muscle mass. Yep. So, uh, you know, I mean, there are those of us who are not super lean going into our Ironman training. I imagine you have to kind of factor that in as well, because you mentioned earlier, you know, the athlete's body composition is important. So I, I would imagine if an athlete comes to you and says, look, I'm training for an Ironman. Yes. I understand. I need to fuel for this, but I also want to lose some weight. You can factor that in. I'm guessing. Yes. Um, I would say, um, in the early stages of training, that is the more ideal time to focus on body composition though. The off season, if there's a lot, if there's a big body composition change goal in mind, the off season actually is really a great time to focus on that because then, um, you're not because to lose weight, you still have to be at a calorie deficit. Right. And so you're potentially leaving some performance on the table there, Um, not completely fueling in like at your maintenance level. So that seems to work for you in terms of like, you have a race weight. And so throughout your training, you kind of reach that before you get to your race. And then when you're in the off season, you gain a little bit more. That is actually a great scenario for your, for that type of situation. But if you have an athlete that is looking to lose quite a bit of weight and lean out, the off season is a great time because you can take that time to lose the right weight. You, because when a lot of people talk about, I want to lose weight, what they really mean is I want to lose body fat. So, and it takes time to lose body fat. It's not going to happen over the course of a few months. It's going to take a, it's going to take a good amount of time because as you said, there's plateaus, there's, you know, times where you'll lose weight and then stop losing weight. Like it's not just a steady, like decline of a pound a week, you know, every week consistently. So, um, during training, yes, um, you can definitely adjust body composition. Um, but when you get to like peak training, it's not a super ideal time to be doing that because you're putting so much stress on your body. And if you're under fueling, even by a little bit, you could be putting yourself more at risk for injury or getting sick. I have found that, um, you know, when you are putting in 15, 18 hour plus weeks, like that's a lot of strain on your body and you want to make sure that you are nourishing as much as you can so you can keep yourself healthy. And then on the flip side, I'm sure you must encounter the athlete who trains and races just so that they have permission to eat. I mean, we, yeah. I, I see this all the time as a physician. I mean, I get, I hear it all the time. It's like, you know, yeah. I went out, I did a big workout so I can go have a cheeseburger and fries and a shake tonight. Yeah. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, I don't think that was the point, but, um, you know, I mean, that's, that's, there's, there's, I know there are tons of people who feel that way. Um, yeah. they, you know, they, they train to give themselves permission to eat yeah. and not to eat well. 
uh, you know, that, that I imagine is a whole other different type of clientele that are also somewhat challenging because, you know, they love, they love food as well. They just don't necessarily love the right foods and they probably have a relationship with food that's, that's difficult, I would imagine. Yeah, it all comes down to mindset there, like shifting the thought process of their eating and nutrition as a tool to enhance their training, enhancing their performance, enhancing their body composition, like not just training and working out so that they can eat more. Um, Now, like as an endurance athlete, we can eat more, like for sure. But if you eat, you know, I don't even like the word junk food, but if you eat crap all day long, like you're not going to get away with it. You're going to feel sluggish you're not gonna perform as well so it's like if you're just out there to exercise and eat more like that's fine but if you're looking to actually progress in your training and like set goals for yourself like I want to you know reach a PR in this marathon or I want to see you know myself get faster so that I can you know get done with an Ironman in the cutoff time like that's where you really have to think about your priorities and making sure that you are thinking of food as an avenue for you to get faster and stronger. All right. Assuming the athlete has gotten faster and stronger uh, through fueling, how then should an athlete fuel during their event? I'm curious as a nutritionist, what you advise your athletes for fueling before and during their target event. Yeah. First and foremost, if if you're going to take anything away from this podcast, You have to practice and trial every piece of your race day nutrition, like months in advance of your race. Like that, you're not just training like your muscles and your lungs and your heart to complete the physical demands of the race, but you also need to train your gut to be able to handle taking in nutrition and hydration while you are exercising for that length of time. Like that is so key. So our bodies are amazing at adapting, right? Like you need to start well in advance of practicing, taking in gels or chews or waffles or beverages, whatever it is that you're going to be using. You need to allow time for your gut to adapt to taking in that fuel while you're, while you're working out at a, whatever heart rate it is. Um, a good example would be like the Martin gels that are really popular on they're provided on Ironman courses. So they have the two options, the caffeinated and the non-caffeinated and the caffeine ones are a pretty heavy dose of caffeine. So not everyone is going to handle those well. So you want to make sure that you trial that not just once, but a number of times so that you can feel really confident using that on race day. Um, and with those concentrated sugar, you know, gels, Um, you want to dilute that with water. So make sure you time it out with your hydration so that um, you are setting your body up for success with with taking in fuel during during your races. Um, And same thing with your pre-race nutrition, you want to trial that in training. So when you have your long runs on a Saturday morning, think through what am I going to use on race day and then practice with that and make sure that you find that appropriate amount and length of time you need to digest it before you start your long run. And having that knowledge is just going to provide you more and more confidence going into race day. 
Yeah, excellent advice. I I have uh, said similar things here before. It's the fourth discipline of triathlon, and it has to be trained. It's not something you can just uh, uh, try out on the day of because that is asking for trouble. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and during an event, I know that you and I see eye to eye on this. It, it's all about carbohydrates. I mean, your body needs carbohydrates oh, yeah. to fuel. And uh, do you have a um, do you have a formula that you use in terms of uh, how much, or is it really going to be individualized based on what the athlete can, can take? I mean, I've, we've got general guidelines. And when I say we, I say dietitians, like sports dietitians. So, um, you know, for, and it based off basically t- like length of time that, that, that workout is going to be. So if you're doing a sprint triathlon, your focus is mainly going to be on hydration and like that. And I guess, pre-race nutrition. So making sure that you are having a carb-rich breakfast with easy to digest carbohydrates, um, maybe a little bit of protein, keep it low fat, low fiber. And then um, for a sprint, you're you're basically just going to be hydrating maybe some electrolytes if it's really hot and humid. Um, you could do a sports drink with some carbs um, during the run portion, just to make sure that you've got enough to like finish really strong and then focus on post-workout nutrition. If you're looking at an Olympic, um, distance, you're probably going to be looking at about 30 grams of carb an hour there. Um, maybe a little bit more, um, starting at, usually you start refueling at about the 45 to 60 minute mark, just cause, um, you don't need to start right away when you go into your race. Um, and then when you're looking at a half Ironman, so two and a half hour plus event Ironman, you're looking at a minimum of 60 grams of carb an hour. Um, but you can go beyond that for sure. You can go up to like 90 grams, which is a lot. I mean, that's like 360 calories an hour. Um, you can break it up into every 20, 30 minutes or so, but yeah, when you're, when you're out there all day long, you need a lot of energy. It's, yeah. Yeah. it's incredible how much athletes have to consume to, to get through those days. So one of the questions I'm asking a lot of people these days, because I'm looking for outside uh, perspectives is uh, your thoughts on continuous glucose monitoring. And if it's something that you utilize with your athletes at all, I do not. Um, and I will say I have a network of dietitians, including some sports dietitians, and we're, we're not into that. They're not into that much either yet. I mean, the, I think the research still needs to come up more and, and be more conclusive there. Um, so you're validating my own viewpoint, so it's nice. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I kind of feel like I kind of feel like it's not. not it sounds really, really great when you read yeah. it. It sounds a little too good to be true, and sometimes when it that it sounds that way, it usually is. So, yeah, um, yeah I'm, um, I haven't, I haven't done anything with that. No. I think uh, that's the best way to kind of finish right there. I think you just summed it up perfectly. Alex Larson, uh, she's a nutritionist and a registered dietitian who works with athletes specifically. I'm going to have all of the links to all of the places you can find her. And I encourage you to to do so because it's well worth your time. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast today. Are you um, uh, doing any events yourself uh, in the next year that you know of? I'm signed up for grandma's half marathon. I have two little boys, so I don't have time right now to train for, you know, triathlons and the three different events. But so I've just been focusing on running as of the past year. And uh, my husband uh, 
for some reason signed up for grandma's half as well. And he's not a runner. So this is going to be a really interesting year to see how this goes. <laughs> well, good luck with the, the business and good luck with the running. And thanks again for being here today. Oh, thanks so much. If you enjoyed the interview with Alex Larson, you can actually see the video of that interview on my YouTube channel. That's the Coaching YouTube channel. And of course, a reminder that there's an entire bonus uh, interview with Alex available to my Patreon supporters. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash Podcast, where you can find more information on how to become a supporter and get that interview today. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesch. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at TriDocPodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, I hope that you'll visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a, review, a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for us to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.